In our consecutive reading this morning, we are in Mark chapter 12. As you turn there, um, you may remember from last week, we're in a passage where the religious leaders of the day are trying to trip up Christ in his words. Um, As we start chapter 12, Christ speaks in parables. about the rejection of the landowner's son, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders know exactly um, what the parable is about. It's about their rejection of Christ, and they know exactly uh, that it was directed toward them, as we will see We also see that uh, that doesn't stop the questioning of the religious leaders. And with each question, with each encounter that they have with Christ, they come away amazed, but they don't come away repentive. They continue to seek to establish and hold on to what they have created uh, rather than what Christ has come to do. Uh, 44 verses, so we'll just go ahead and get started right through. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug and put a vat under under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him, last of all, to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and destroy the He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians in, in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Renders to Caesar 
the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise, and so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the, and the God of Jacob. This is, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that he had answered them well. Ask him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribes said to him, Right, teacher, you have truthfully stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teachings, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Well, this morning as we go to prayer, once again, we especially want to remember the Maidenbower Baptist Church in Crawley, England with Pastor Walker. And then also want to remember that this week, 
uh, is the Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference in Montville, New Jersey. Uh, I'm not going to be able to go this year, but many men will be heading to New Jersey or already in New Jersey for the Pastors Conference. Many of the men that we pray for regularly here, I believe Pastor Kane from Australia is coming, Pastor Bala from New Zealand will be there, as well as many men from here in the States and around the world. So pray that as they gather, God will draw near and minister to them as they spend most of their lives ministering to others, that this week would be a time of refreshing for them. So let us seek our God together in prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, we have been reminded in the reading of your words that you are the one who knows everything there is to know about each one of us. Our Lord said to those to whom he spoke that he knew their hypocrisy. And Father, how we pray this morning as we've gathered in this place that we are sincere and genuine in our worship of our great God. That you who know our hearts know that we honor you not simply with our lips, but we honor you with our hearts. That it is from our innermost being that we worship you this morning. And so, Father, we pray that as we've gathered together corporately to sing praises to you, to pray to you, to hear from you, that, Father, you will make your presence known. That we might be able to say that it was good to be in the house of the Lord because God met with us. And so by your living word and by your spirit, may you come and minister and do good to us this day. And as we desire that to happen here, we desire that to take place wherever the word of God is open, wherever people gather together to worship you in spirit and in truth, whether that be right here at home in this county or anywhere else around the world. Father, we pray this morning and thank you for the Maiden Bower Baptist Church there in Crawley, England. Thank you for Pastor Walker and his labors. And Father, we pray that you'll continue to bless that assembly. Thank you for helping them to persevere in the midst of the pandemic. Father, we're thankful that they reported of various visitors that have begun to meet with them, as well as the disappointment of some who have left them. But Father, we pray that you would help them to continue to do that which you've called them to do. And Father, we pray that as they seek to reach out into the community, that you would bless that endeavor, whether it be in the open-air preaching, whether it be in the gathering together for luncheons, Father, we pray that the gospel may go forth, and upon hearing that gospel, your kingdom may be extended by granting faith and repentance to the hearers. And then, Father, we would pray as well that you would be with the men who will be gathering or who have already gathered there in Montville, New Jersey. We pray that the fellowship among the men would be very refreshing to their own souls, the opportunities they have of setting and hearing your word preached 
would be a means to do them good and to help them in their labors. We pray that the blessings of this week upon that place would therefore spill over to the various congregations of the men of the, of the places where these men labor and shepherd the people of God. So draw near to them. We think especially of of Tuesday night when they have an evangelistic service that perhaps many even from the community would come. Perhaps workmates or family members who are unconverted would come and hear the declaration of the gospel. The Spirit of God would so work in their hearts and lives that again the kingdom of God would be extended. So thank you for this opportunity. We pray for those who are not with us this morning. We know that some are laid aside. We we thank you for watching over Dan and his procedure this week and would ask that he would know of a quick and speedy recovery. Father, we pray that you'd be with those who are away. Many are visiting family. Watch over them. Keep them safe as they travel. But now, Father, most of all, we pray that you would come and minister to us from your word as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now before we come to open the Word of God, take the Trinity Hymn Book once again. The Trinity Hymn Book, that familiar hymn number 400. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Number 400 in the Trinity Hymn Book. Let's stand together as we sing.
be seated. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. For those of you who are visiting with us, we are in the midst of a study of this book of Deuteronomy, which was Moses' last message to the children of Israel before they were to enter into the promised land. So they're right on the brink, and they're about ready to go in, to cross over the Jordan and go into the promised land. And so Moses is now giving them some words of instruction with regard to how they ought to live when they enter into that land. And in the section that we're now in, in many ways, Moses is opening up the, the fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder. He's, he's speaking about the sanctity of life that ought to be a part of the people of God even as they enter into the promised land. And here in chapter 20, he's instructing them with regard to warfare. You might recall a couple weeks ago, we were reminded that as the children of Israel march into the promised land, they would face opposition, fierce opposition by those who are already occupying that land. And God says, by way of preparation, do not be afraid. Though you are fewer in number, and though they have a mighty army, and they have chariots, and they have horses, and, and we're basically foot soldiers, and the best we have may be a pick or a hoe, and, and things don't look very good, do not be afraid, for I will be with you. And he would have them, as they enter into this land, and as they face warfare, to focus upon the faithfulness of God. To, to, to go into battle by faith, not by sight. In fact, if you recall a couple weeks ago, what God says, and you know what? Your army's too big. Even though they outnumber you, it's still too big. And so he depleted some of the ranks of the army by saying, first of all, if you've not lived in your house very long, or, or if you just got married, you don't need to go. Or, if you don't want to go, if you're going to be cowards, then don't go. And so he reduced the ranks of the army of Israel when it would come time to fight the warfare. But that was all part of the preparation. But now, as we come to verse 10, through the end of this chapter, Moses instructs them with regard to the execution of warfare, how they were to fight, what were they to do. And so follow along as I begin reading there at verse 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 20. Moses says, When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer its terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace, if it makes, agrees to make peace with you, 
and to open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of a sword. Only the women and children and the animals and all that is in the city and all its spoils you shall take as booty for yourselves. And you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. And thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not the cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Parasites and the Levite and the Jebusites as the Lord your God has commanded you. And so, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods so that you will so that you would sin against the Lord your God. And when you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them, for you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a man that he should be besieged by you? Only the trees which you know are not fruit trees you shall destroy and cut down that you may construct sage work against the cities that is making war with you until it falls. So here we have the directions concerning the execution of war against those that would oppose them. And, and as we consider what Moses is telling them about warfare and about fighting the opposition, we find here that their focus needs to be upon the kindness and the severity of God. There's a focus upon the grace and the goodness of God and at the same time, the severity and the wrath of Almighty God. So Moses is setting before the people the opposition by way of two categories. There are those nations which are far away, and there are those nations that are nearby. So my outline is fairly simple. First of all, the cities that are far from you and how warfare goes against them. And then secondly, we will consider the cities nearby. But I pray that as we consider these things together, 
the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 to the Gentiles, he says to them, Behold, the kindness and the severity of God. The kindness and the severity of God. So first of all, notice with me, the cities far from you. You see, Israel has been given a territory. There's a promised land that has boundaries. There's a border that makes up the land, this promised land. Paul talks about in Acts 17 and verse 26 that this God who made, one, who made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their inhabitation. So God has given them a certain territory that would have boundaries that would make up the promised land. But what Moses has in mind, and it's difficult to know exactly what he has in mind when he talks about those cities that are far away. Some believe that he's talking about once they enter into the promised land, remember they were to expand the territory, at first, there were to be three cities of refuge, and, and then later on, there would be six cities of refuge as the, the boundaries expanded. And so some believe that what he's talking about is when you first settle in the land, you'll fight the enemy nearby, but then as you expand the land, there'll be other enemies, other oppositions that you must fight. I, I believe that perhaps what he's talking about is once you've entered into this land, and then boundaries are there, this is where you're to inhabit, this is your territory, there will be some from outside that territory that will want to expand their land into your territory, and you've got to go up against them. You've got to fight against them. And so when others want to come in and invade your land, you must be ready to fight. There will be warfare that takes place. That as they go to war, they have this confidence. God will be with us. He will give us this land. Now, now, as we think of those cities far away who may come in and try to invade Israel's territory, there, there's a couple things we consider together. First of all, they are to offer peace. You see that in the text? Verse 10. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. Before the battle ever begins, before a sword is ever drawn, before you ever enter into the conflict, an offer shall be given. And that offer is an offer of peace. We don't have to fight with one another. There is a way in which we can 
be reconciled. There, there can be tr peace between the two cities. And if, now I, I try to imagine, here's Israel going to battle. They've got picks and they've got axe and they've got hoes. And, and, and here there's an army coming in to invade them. And they say, wait a minute. Before we fight, we want to give you a chance to live at peace. And I imagine this army with chariots and horses standing there saying, What? Really? You want to offer, make an offer for us to have peace in which we become your servants? And I imagine the Israelites might be standing there saying, Well, that's what we were told to do. <laughs> we hope it works out for us. God said He'd be with us. God says when I give you this land. So our confidence is not in what you see in us. Our confidence is in our great God. And as puny as we are with our God, we can accomplish great things. So we're going to offer you a way of peace. You see... Israel has a reputation. It is known how God delivered Israel out of Egypt. Egypt was a mighty land with a mighty army. And yet Israel was able to escape from them. It was well known that, that God had directed Israel through the wilderness for 40 years and, and how He provided for them and how when they came up against opposition during those days, how God took care of them. Re remember, when Israel enter into, enters into the promised land and, and they go to take Jericho, and Rahab the harlot speaks to the spies who, who came into Jericho, and Rahab the harlot says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that terror of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Your reputation has the men of Jericho, to be quite honest, quite fearful because they've heard not about your mighty army, but they've heard about your mighty God and what He has done. So when this offer of peace comes to the opposition, they need to stop and think. Do we dare take these people on and their God? Or shall we surrender and enter into a different relationship, one which we become their servants. That was the first thing. But the second thing was, if they will not bring peace, then besiege the city. If they reject the offer of peace, then they were to make war. They were to strike all the men with the edge of the sword and so to cause the opposition to be unable to make war. Verse 13 gives them this encouragement. You know, when, if they refuse, 
but make war against you? Verse 13, When the Lord your God gives into your hand, you shall strike all the men. God will cause you to be victorious. And so you're to besiege the city. One man has said, those things that we undertake by divine warrant and pursue by divine direction, we may expect to succeed in. Let me say that again. Those things that we undertake by divine warrant and pursue by divine direction, we may expect to succeed in. Matthew Henry says this, if we get God's if we get God's methods, God's direction, we shall have God's blessing. If we get God's method and God's direction, we shall have God's blessing. And then instruction is given to them. And and again, here we see the kindness of God. Look at verses 19 and 20. When you besiege the city a long time and make war and capture it, do not destroy its trees by the swinging of the axe, the fruit trees, so that you can eat of it. Here again is the kindness and grace of God. Don't destroy the fruit trees because they're a means of livelihood and nourishment. And you can eat them. But here's what I want you to notice with me. As we consider this scenario, as Moses is telling them, when you go to war against those who are far away, you offer them peace. And here we have a wonderful illustration of the gospel. Man by nature is opposed to God. Man by nature stands at enmity against God. And God comes along, and though what we deserve is to have Him destroy us, what does He do? He offers us a way of peace. A a way of being reconciled to Him. And He initiates this. He says, here's My Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, And He is willing to take your sins upon Himself. And I will not spare My wrath against Him because of your sins. I will pour out My wrath upon Him. And those who trust in Him can be reconciled to God. All this is God's doing. And here we have a wonderful picture. Opposition comes. The children of Israel say, we have a way of peace. You don't deserve it. Our God is bigger than you. We can destroy you. But here's a way of peace. And then the relationship radically changes. And instead of being in opposition to one another, they become servants to the children of Israel. And, and, and the Apostle Paul mentions this. And in, in, look over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
starting at verse 18. Well, I'll start at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away, and behold, new things have come. There's been this change. If we've been united to Christ by faith and been found in Christ, we're new creatures. Then he goes on to describe that in this way. Verse 18. Now all things are from God. This is God's doing. He's the initiator who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's a way of peace. He made Him to be who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What a glorious gospel. We come in opposition to God. God comes along and says, I want to make peace. But I can't simply wink at your sin. Your sin must be punished. So here's the way of reconciliation. Here's a way of peace. It's in my Son, Jesus Christ. He became sin for you that you might have a righteousness that's not your own and through that righteousness be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is not something man does, but something he receives. Reconciliation is not something man accomplishes. It's something he embraces. It is the work of Almighty God. It is not that which is deserved. It is that which comes to you by grace. The grace of God. Jeffrey Thomas says this, the staggering message of the New Testament is that reconciliation is a work of God. Here He is, the offended and injured party, the one sinned against, and yet He has set up the whole machinery of reconciliation. It is a work that does not draw within its scope human action. He's the one offended. He's the one who's been trespassed against. And yet He comes to you and says, there's a way of peace I've provided in My Son, Jesus Christ. Mr. Spurgeon, and this is a fairly long quote, but what he has to say with regard to reconciliation is this. There has been a long-standing quarrel between God and man. 
It commenced in that day when our first parents hearkened to the servant's voice and believing the devil rather than their maker. Yet, God is not willing that our quarrel continue. According to the goodness of His nature, He delights in love. He is the God of peace. And He has, on His part, prepared everything that is needful for perfect reconciliation. His glorious wisdom has devised a plan whereby, without violating His justice as judge of all the earth, and without tarnishing His perfect holiness, He can meet man upon the grounds of mercy. A man can again become a friend of God. The blessed work was done long ago. And now all that remains is that man should be reconciled to God and that he should be willing to end the dispute and that his heart should turn toward his Maker again in love and peace and perfect reconciliation. He bids us, His ministers, and indeed all of His servants, each according to His opportunity and experience and knowledge and ability and grace, to go abroad amongst the sons of men and exercise the ministry of reconciliation, to labor to bring men into harmony with God, that they may be willing to accept what God has done towards the making of an everlasting peace and ending once for all this grievous quarrel. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's what God has done. Why? Did God look upon us and say, oh, they're such wonderful people. They deserve this? No, it was while we were yet sinners. God sent His Son to die for the ungodly. There's a way of peace. Peace with God. It comes by God's grace, by God's kindness. It's amazing grace that would save a wretch like us. And so when we see the instructions or hear the instructions that Moses gives to the children of Israel. And he says concerning those city, that city far away, when you go at war against them, first of all, make it recognize there is a way of peace. And God comes to us this morning and says, my friend who's still living in rebellion to God, still living in your sin, I don't want to crush you. I don't want to destroy you. There is a way of peace. And it's through my son. What will you do with that this morning? God's grace. God's kindness on display. But then we come back to Deuteronomy chapter 20 and he has a word for those cities nearby. In other words, those cities that occupy the land of promise. And here... He gives this command. Look at verse 15. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not the cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these people, those cities nearby, that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes 
But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittites, the Amorites, and so forth. Now, this is one of those passages you read and you say, oh, wow. This is one of those passages, you know, when you get ready, if you're preaching expositorily, and you come to a passage like this, you're thinking, oh, I hope we don't have a lot of visitors this Sunday because this is what some people would read and say, listen, look at your bloodthirsty God. He's out to destroy every one of them. Anything that has breath, the command, and that's the first thing we're given, the command is you destroy them. That would mean every man and woman, every boy and girl, every animal, anything that breathes, you're commanded to destroy them. And the, and, and the unconverted man begins to question God. What kind of God do you have that would do such a thing? And my answer to that is this. My friend, who are you to question the God who created this world and everything in it? You've got the role reversal here. But here we're reminded in stark ways of the wrath and judgment of God. It's not something we like to hear about. We would far rather hear about God's grace. Pastor, you're, you're doing so well. That first point is wonderful. God's grace and God's kindness and God's goodness. And now you want to talk about His wrath? His judgment? Do you know that that the Word of God says more about God's wrath and judgment than it does about His goodness? And here we have a picture of the final judgment upon all those who will stand opposed to God. We, we have other illustrations of that final judgment in the Word of God. We have the great flood. Remember the flood that came and covered the earth? And only Noah and his family were rescued and delivered from that flood. Everyone else was destroyed. Man, woman, boy, and girl that would stand opposed to God. Do you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? And God bringing out Lot and his family, and everyone else in that city is destroyed because of God's hatred for sin and his anger against sin. Now, there's times that we've got to pull back a little bit. Because when we think of anger and wrath, we think of, of it in human terms. You know, the man whose veins begin to pop out. And his face turns red and he loses control of his emotions and he begins to scream and holler and swing and punch anything in sight. That's not the anger of God. God's anger is holy anger. God's wrath is a just wrath. There's nothing evil in God's anger. He hasn't lost control of his emotions but here's what you need to know. God's wrath is real. It is real. And those who stand opposed to God, those who reject God, will one day know the wrath and anger of God. In fact, as we mentioned in Sunday school this morning, as we see the evil all around us today and the immorality 
and the lawlessness. Romans 2 tells us this is not a surprise. God's not leaving his judgment just till the end. We're we're storing up judgment against ourselves. And God's patience and long-suffering will at one occasion finally say, I've had enough. I'll leave them to their own destruction. And we see that in our day today. With all the things around us, the lawlessness, the transgender things that are going on, the shedding of innocent blood in the womb, is all a demonstration of God's judgment upon a nation that rebels and rejects the living God. But in the end, when the full manifestation of God's wrath is revealed, Upon the wicked, it will be a sobering, grievous, painful experience. In fact, the Bible says when he releases his final judgment and his wrath, people will be crying out for the rocks and the hills to fall upon them. They would rather be crushed by the stones of boulders falling off a mountain than experiencing the wrath of Almighty God. Does does that put fear in your heart? Now, I know. I know I'm not supposed to preach upon the wrath of God. Well, let me say this. I know that many don't believe I ought to preach on the wrath of God. But the wrath of God is something that is told us in the Word of God that we need to think about. In fact, A.W. Pink, A.W. Pink, in his, his little book on the attributes of God, says this, The wrath of God is a perfection of the divine character upon which we need to meditate frequently. He says, you need to think about the wrath of God frequently. When was the last time you thought about the wrath of God? He goes on and he gives three things that happens when you think about the wrath of God. Number one, that our hearts may be duly impressed by God's abhorrence against sin. You know why when we read what we read here about everyone being destroyed, we're somewhat taken back. Everyone destroyed. You know why we're, ta- we're, we're taken back by that? Because we don't see sin as ugly as it is. Remember earlier, where was it? I think it was the Deuteronomy 9 where God told the children of Israel, don't think, don't think that you're going into this land because you're something. Don't think you're going into this land because you've impressed God. You're going to go into this land and you're going to overtake this land because the people in the land are wicked. And God's going to bring judgment upon their wickedness. God hates sin. And we don't hate it enough. 
Secondly, Mr. Pink says, when we think upon the wrath of God, we beget a true fear of our souls for God. We beget a true fear in our souls for God. Makes us recognize and have a fear of God and long to please Him. Not a fear of a wrongdoer, but a fear of, I need to live for Him. And thirdly, Mr. Pink says, it draws out our souls in fervent praise for having delivered us from the wrath to come. When we think about the wrath of God and the fact that in Christ there's now no condemnation, as awful as that wrath might be, I will not experience it because of God's grace and because of His Son, Jesus Christ. And for that, I give Him praise. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son. And so the wrath of God is real. Here's my question. There's a way of peace. You can be reconciled to God today. Or you can reject and turn away from the offer of peace and know His wrath. My question for some of you is, why do you sit here another Sunday and hear the Word of God and will not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do you continue on in your sin and refuse this wonderful gift that's been offered to you? Why do you go on that way? Do you think somehow you're going to be the exemption? Do you really believe that somehow you're going to get out of this mess somehow on your own? I say it lovingly, if that's your thought, your thinking is a fool. Because you won't. You won't. And now here's another opportunity. God says there's a way of peace. What are you going to do with it? Come to my son. Believe upon him. The wrath of God ought to cause you even this morning to run to him. When Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he so described the wrath of God that it said that the people grabbed hold of the pews lest they fall into hell at that moment. And they were so scared. And yet there are some who said here, I'm not going to do it. I will not turn. And I don't understand why. But I pray for many of us the topic of the wrath of God and the fact that we will not experience it ought to lead us to praise Him for His grace and for His goodness. I would just in closing have you notice with me that Moses goes on and tells them why. Why are you to destroy these inhabitants? They, they were wicked individuals. Why are they to be destroyed? He says... Here in the passage, so that, that's verse 18, it's a word of purpose, so that they may not teach you to do according to all the detestable things which they have done, 
for their God so that you will not sin against the Lord your God. He's saying, you know what? The wicked can have an influence upon you, and I don't want that to happen. Remember, was it Malachi that talked about if an unclean thing touched a holy thing, does the unclean become holy? Or does the holy thing become unclean? And you see, the Word of God reminds us that the wicked can have an influence upon us. And that's why we've got to be diligent to keep our own hearts. That, that's why we've got to be diligent to ask to be sensitive to sin. And where sin is revealed, that we would be quick to confess and forsake our sins. Blessed be God. He's faithful and just to forgive us. But so often we can be influenced by the world. And don't we see that in our day? It's a sad thing when we see the, the world creeping into our churches instead of the churches having an influence upon the world. And we've got to guard against that. That's why some people would say, Pastor, if you want to grow a church, you can't. This rat thing has to go. No, it's the Bible. It can't go. So here we have these two things, the goodness and the kindness of God, the severity and the wrath of God. Where do you stand this morning? Well, I trust we can sing with John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that the Word of God would come and that you would give an increase that only you can give. Maybe, Father, today would be the day of salvation for some. That they would flee to Christ who only is able to save them from their sin. Those that believe not are condemned. And so, Father, may you do a work in hearts and lives, breaking hearts of stone and turning them to hearts of flesh. Father, we pray that as the people of God, we, we might rejoice in the great salvation and in the deliverance that we know from the wrath of God. May, may it cause us to f- fear You more, to desire to live for You, to please You in all that we do. Father, we pray that the evil of this world would not have an influence upon us, that we would not be conformed to the world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so, Father, take Your Word and by the work of Your Spirit, Do us good, we pray, as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in closing, let's take our Trinity hymn books and turn to that hymn by John Newton, 402, 402 in the Trinity. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Let's stand together as we sing.
thankful we ought to be that God offers us peace. What a delight to be at peace with God. We're having lunch together. You're welcome to stay and be a part of that. And then we'll have another service about 145.